Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor and saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were, in his, were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriage with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as, as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised? For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gates of the city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let us dwell, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gates of a city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of the city on the third day, when they were sore... The two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field all their wealth and their little ones and their wives. All that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Persians. 
My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You guys can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, uh, as we consider this really difficult passage and terrible circumstances, and as we consider the things that happen in our world that are also horrible, I pray that you would help us to see um, not only the hope that exists in Jesus Christ, though certainly that first and foremost, but also the responsibility you give us in the world. Lord, I pray that you would take a difficult and discouraging passage, use it to challenge us and to give us hope in your gospel. pray all these things in your name. Amen. So this morning's passage is uh, perhaps the most disturbing in Genesis. For some of you, it may be the most personally difficult to hear, particularly, particularly because rape is an offense that sets the stage for everything that happens in this particular chapter. Most statistics show that one in five women, at least, have either been the victim of sexual abuse or attempted sexual abuse, often by someone they know, and the stats for men are really not that far behind. What's more, for some of you, there were men who were in position to protect or to defend you or at least to respond and, and perhaps bring some kind of justice to your situation, but they didn't. That's not what happened. Instead, they were spineless, or they were wicked. Their negligence perpetuated the problem, or even worse, they perpetrated it. I'm aware that there will be more than a couple of people in the room for whom these first few verses call up really difficult memories. I think that's all the more reason to preach this passage. As you know, when we preach, we preach through a book of the Bible. And what God says and what God decided to put there, I try to do the best I can to present that to you. I don't skip over hard passages because life doesn't skip over hard things, Right? God's Word has answers. God's Word has answers to questions that we may not in this moment even be asking. Maybe we should have been. So what would happen if I avoided this passage? What would happen? What would be left? Uh, who would be left to respond to these kinds of things? You see, while the occasion for this chapter is this terrible rape of Dinah, the bulk of the passage, indeed, where I think the point is found, is in the response. 
And if I responded by skipping over this, I would be no better than Jacob. So let me put this passage in context, in the context of Genesis so far. What we've seen from the start of Genesis is that God the Father, through God the Son, creates and orders everything, right? And He creates man after His own image, and male and female, He creates them, and it's no accident that He creates Adam first. The creation order reflects the Creator and His purposes. But Adam sins, right? And straight away, with Cain and Abel, there are two kinds of men that we see. There are wicked men, and there are godly men. God calls men with their families and works through them in the world. Noah, for instance, or, Ad, or Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, and so on. And these men, these, these guys have fantastic successes at times, and at times they fall flat on their face, right? And we've talked about these events. When men who are in position to lead fail to lead or fail to lead rightly, everyone loses. The world loses, but I think women especially seem to lose. The men in our passage this morning fail, and things go from bad to worse. But the answer isn't to get men out of here. We're still in the first book of the Bible, right? Barely halfway through it. And it turns out, as we continue to read all the rest of the Bible, God doesn't give up on men. In fact, it seems he doubles down. He does the opposite. And so the bottom line uh, that I want to present to you this morning, the thing that I want to really press into is this. The world needs men of wisdom, strength, and service. What the world needs is not less of men. What the world needs is men of wisdom, strength, and service. Men who live wisely in a wicked and foolish world and lead others accordingly. Men who deploy the power of God that God gives them for the service of others rather than grabbing at power for their selfish gain. Men who understand why they are on this planet in their job and in their family and in the lives that they live for a purpose. This morning I want to ask you, what's the risk if men don't do that? What's the risk? Then at the end, I want to consider if that's even possible. Now, lest you ladies feel left out, I do want to say, I hope you realize first how critically important it is to wives and to daughters and to sisters, and to women everywhere, that men of God be men of wisdom, strength, and service. This is not irrelevant to you. It is perhaps one of the most relevant things. Women profit greatly, perhaps profit the most, when men are men of God. Second, while this particularly has application to men as we examine these men who do not do these things. 
And as it particularly has application in regards to the consequences of this passage or, or to our world today, it is also good for women to be wise, and to be strong, and to be servants. So there certainly is application for you ladies. Third, wives and someday wives, you are uniquely positioned to call out these things in your husband's. And to see them grow and to develop in these ways. Or you're uniquely positioned to usurp and kill these qualities in your husband. And you get to choose. You get to choose by your actions. Fourth, and this is the last one. Last reason that women should, this matter, should matter. And you're not left out in this sermon. Fourth, mothers, particularly. Raise sons to be men who are wise and strong and servants. You have a particular and not an easy task to do this. To raise men who are not utterly self-willed and foolish men of vengeance like Jacob's brother Esau was raised, nor are limp-wristed, selfish, and passive men who constantly need mom to take care of them like Jacob but to raise men who are strong and wise who serve others. All right, with that in mind, let's consider what is the risk. What's the risk of God's people living foolishly in the world? The first thing we need to understand is that Jacob and his family were in the wrong place. Before this passage, before this chapter even begins, Jacob has already messed up. He's already been a fool. God called him to Canaan, right, back to the, the promised land, but he called him especially to go back to where his father was. While Jacob gets to Canaan, he stops short. He stops in Shechem, and he sets up camp there. Jacob repeats the failure of his great uncle Lot, who decides to saddle up close to the people of the land. It wasn't that there weren't supposed to be any interactions with the people of the land, but God desired his people to have a certain kind of separation in order that they wouldn't be tempted to worship the false gods of the people or to commit their sins. And that failure, this foolishness, is the first mistake. And it, Jacob puts his family at great risk. And so with that, we jump into verse 1 and we see that Dinah, quote, went out to see the women of the land. Now, this term isn't so innocent as it sounds at first, at least she's being unwise by putting herself in a compromising position that she clearly should not, if not actually adopting the ways of the women of the land in which they lived. It would seem that this phrase actually implies that not only is she going out to just kind of go like, oh, I wonder what they're doing, but that she's actually entering into their behaviors entering into their habits, taking on their sins and their false idols. It's become uncouth in our world to imply that someone who has had a great offense done to them may have, by their foolishness, put themselves in a position that made that offense more likely. But this is most certainly what this passage is conveying, and it's most certainly what the book of Proverbs is filled with examples of. 
there are likely consequences of being unwise versus being wise. And the world says, you can't say that about someone who has become a victim. But the Bible says, you need to say that to people or else they will become victims. There's a difference between making something more likely and causing something to happen. No one is saying that Dinah caused herself to be abused or to be raped. But most certainly it's saying that her habits, what she was doing, put her in a position where it became likely. No one is saying that Shechem didn't commit a horrific sin. But it is saying that her foolish lack of obedience to God's command did create a greater opportunity for that offense against her. She is not sinless in this situation. Now, let me be clear. Let me anticipate an objection. This is not the case for everyone who has been abused. Too many people are completely powerless to do anything at all. Too many people are in a place where they have no power to stop or to get out of a situation where someone is perpetrating terrible sins against them. It's all the more reason why we need men who are wise and strong and who are willing to make sacrifices to serve these people who can't help themselves out of their situation. But wisdom, friends, can help. Your wisdom, warning your sons and daughters to be wise. Wise about the people who they are with, wise about the things that they do, wise about the places they go, matters. Just as Proverbs tells us over and over and over again. And so the unfortunate table is set for a terrible offense. Shechem, the prince of the land, sees Dinah and he rapes her. And there's this juxtaposition in verses 2 and 3. Do you see this? Verse 2 says three things happen. He seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. And then verse 3 says three things happen as well. He's drawn to her, he loved her, he spoke tenderly to her. These three are in parallel to one another they're contrasting things, right? We can see how the second three actions are a mirror opposites of the first three. And if the atrocity of verse 2 hadn't occurred, perhaps verse 3 might actually incline us to be sympathetic to Shechem. Hey, here's a guy who just, he's drawn to this woman, he sees. And he loves her. He speaks tenderly to her. He wants to be married to her. These are good things. But unfortunately... Verse 2 did happen. It happened out of order. Perhaps someone may even still think, well, this Shechem, he really screwed it up, right? He really messed this up. But it looks like he's trying to do the right thing now at least. But I think his response to his dad is revealing, get me this girl for my wife. And his actions later reveal that he's probably not, not such a stand-up guy. His love for her feels cheap and empty. 
And so what's the risk of God's people living foolishly in the world? Well, I think the answer is this. The more foolish we are, the more likely sin becomes. The more foolish particularly, particularly God's people are, and particularly God's men are, the more likely that sin will increase in the world. It's not only that more foolishness increases, but that it becomes more likely that sin increases. When wise, strong, godly men serve, or, or, or rather fail to serve, and speak up in civil government, for instance, that God is established for the purpose of punishing evil, what happens? When wise, strong, and godly men fail to serve by speaking clearly about what is evil, but instead promote foolishness, what happens? When wise, strong, and godly men fail to serve by leading their families and raising up children who are more wise than even they are, what happens? The world can't identify true north. And when the church ceases to act as a moral compass, either because she doesn't have one or because she's scared to point out the truth, sin increases in the world. And Christ continues to look upon the masses with compassion because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and we're supposed to be the shepherd. while men who ought to be leading, feeding, and protecting them are raping them for selfish gain, figuratively and all too often literally. Who will be a man of wisdom, strength, and service? What's the risk of God's leaders failing to rightly stand against sin? What's the risk? Verse 5, Jacob hears what happens, but his sons are gone. His sons aren't there, and he holds his peace, it says. He waits, and perhaps we wonder why. If we're charitable to Jacob here, perhaps we think, well, he's kind of an old guy by now. His sons are the young bucks, his, you know, uh, his bodyguards, if you will, in a sense, his defense, and perhaps Jacob is just being shrewd. He's just waiting for the right moment. But the rest of his actions, or rather his inaction, reveal something very different, do they not? And what, what you need to understand is that Jacob alone is the patriarch. He is God's ordained leader for his family. He is the father ruler. He is the one who is to make the decisions, protect his family, lead his household to do as God would have them to do. But he seems ambivalent. He knows what happened was wrong, but he doesn't seem to care as much as he ought. Jacob, who would later nearly die at the thought of losing Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin, just doesn't care very much about Leah's daughter. But you know who does care? Leah's sons, Dinah's brothers. They care. They care quite a bit. They're red hot. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. And Jacob relinquishes his duties to them. 
So when they return, they engage in this conversation, not just Jacob, but the brothers as well, with Shechem and his father, Hamor. Hamor says, my son longs for your daughter. How about we do this? How about our people and your people just kind of, you know, intermix? Shechem adds, hey, what, we will give you whatever gift you want as well. Just, just accept me. If you would just approve of me, I know I raped your daughter, but, but if you would just accept me and you would approve of me, just turn a blind eye to the fact that I did this terrible thing because now I love her. After all, if someone says that they love someone, it's impossible that they could do any moral wrong, right? Why do we recognize how foolish the logic is here and not recognize it all over in our world? Notice a few things. First, Hamor's plan, it goes beyond expectations, actually. If it weren't for what Shechem had already done, it might even be considered generous. He's basically offering to them what God had promised. You can have property in the land. You can live here. You can do whatever. You can have Canaan. But he's not offering in the way that God intends to give it. It makes actual practical sense for Jacob to agree to this offer. It could assuage animosity. It could increase them economically. Except, it doesn't actually go by what God promised, and it would break God's word to not intermix with the Canaanites. Second, we have Hamor, secondly, Hamor uh, reveals his double-mindedness later, doesn't he? In verses 21 through 23, when he is selling this agreement to the people of the land, he reveals his true intent. It's much like what Satan does when he's tempting Jesus. Here, if you would just worship me, I'll give you all of this. But in reality, he is not intending to give all of that. In reality, he's trying to take all of that. It's not that Jacob's household will increase, but rather that the people of the world will absorb Jacob's household. Guys, this is the lie. This is the lie. Satan wants to downplay the gravity of sin. Be nice. Accept us. Break down that wall that God has set up. Doesn't it seem arbitrary anyways? Wouldn't God's people grow if you just didn't make a big deal about that? It sounds like a win, and in the short run it may look like a win, but in the long run God's people get gobbled up by the world. In the long run, the church ceases to be the church. God says, my people will be holy, set apart from the world. The sign of this will be circumcision. It's on that point, actually, that this story gets even more twisted. You see, in verse 13, not Jacob, but Jacob's sons reply as if they are the patriarch. Jacob defers to his sons when it is his responsibility, and the sons, it says, respond deceitfully, which tells us what they're about to say is not a good plan. It's not a godly plan. They say, well, the issue that's keeping us from having this agreement between us, it's not really a matter of, you know, uh, practical things. It's not really a matter of economics. It's, it's really a religious issue. It would be disgraceful to give our sister to someone who is uncircumcised because we kind of do this circumcision thing. That's how we roll. 
and uh, it would be disgraceful for us to intermarry with the people that are uncircumcised. So, if you would just become like us, then we will agree. If you just become like us, but if you don't, we'll be taking our daughter uh, and going, which is ironic. They call their sister their daughter, right? They've totally usurped their father's position. Well, really, Jacob has just handed it over. And so what's the risk of God's leaders failing to rightly stand against sin? Well, the answer, I think, is this. If godly men don't step up, then ungodly men will step in. That's what happens. When those that God has ordained and ordered to lead fail to do so, a vacuum vacuum is created, and it's almost always filled with sinful, immature, and violent men, men who may see a real problem but have totally the wrong solution. And so God's law, it's, it's written on our hearts, right? Even if we choose to ignore it, and when, when immoral things happen, something must be done about those things. Laws and rules can never be detached from morals. Someone's morals will be brought to bear on that thing. Church, will it be those that come from the creator of the world who ordered everything, who desires good for his creation, who knows how the world and humanity flourishes best, or will it be something else from someone else? One of Satan's ploys, starting with Adam, is to keep godly men, whom he has given leadership to, to keep them out of leading rightly or leading at all. Is that not what we see at the tree? and all throughout Scripture. Satan will pacify men, keep them from leading like Adam or Jacob. Or he'll try to leverage them to do evil like Shechem, Simeon, and Levi. If we can't do one of those, then he'll just destroy them. And on the third day, when everyone was sore, Simeon and Levi take up their swords, and they murder not just some more, not just Shechem, but every male in the city. They take all their flocks, they take all their wealth, they take their children, and they take their wives. And the truth is revealed. All along, these men of vengeance, all along, these men had vengeance in their hearts. And they used God's covenant, God's loving, gracious benevolent covenant with them as a cover and a means for their evil. The man Shechem raped their sister, but they raped the city of Shechem. And the way they did it is by raping God's covenant. It is horrifying to us We can understand the raw anger and rage at the thought of a sister raped. And maybe if they had killed Shechem, we'd say, well, dude had it coming. But how could they imagine that this rape, as terrible as it is, and it is truly terrible, could justify the murder of dozens, probably hundreds of people who were innocent of that crime? How is this even fathomable, right? How 
Is this anything that's even closely related to justice? How could someone imagine doing that? Might I remind you, does not our country use this logic to justify the murder of hundreds of babies each year? Merely because they were conceived in a terrible sin that they had absolutely no control over. Yet they paid the price. How is that justice? Will men of wisdom, strength, and service step up? Or will wicked men step in? What's the risk? What's the risk of God's sons failing to live for God's glory? You read this story and you think, man, what happens to Dinah, Simeon, and Levi? What they do is terrible. How could this be worse? That's, that's what I thought the first time I read it, the second time I read it. But it turns out that it's actually worse than I imagined as I studied it more. As I said just a second ago, God's covenant is defiled. To understand this, we've got to remember what circumcision is about. Their proposal that all the men need to be circumcised wasn't entirely inaccurate. Actually, you know, the best lies have some truth in them, right? It's not entirely inaccurate. They're they're actually quoting Genesis 17.10. They're quoting God's covenant where God said, every male among you must be circumcised. God said that. However, there was a way for people outside of God's family, outside of the people of Israel, to come into God's family. There was a provision for that. First, they needed to deny their idols and sins, and they needed to put their faith in God and in his promises to Abraham, right? Just as Abraham had. And then, and then they would be circumcised as a sign of their being set apart from the world to God. There was an order to this covenant, just like there is an order to the covenant of marriage. It's how God designed it. And God's design doesn't cease to exist just because people don't think He exists. Shechem took the sign of marriage, sex, before the love and commitment were actually there, before the covenant was actually made. Simeon and Levi, likewise, offer the sign of God's covenant without the love and commitment for God, that it was to represent. In using circumcision, God's loving covenant with His people, as a guise for their evil, they, in a sense, raped God's covenant. They defiled it, then they broke it by taking the women and children for themselves. They showed themselves no better than Shechem, who took their sister. They showed that they had no regard for God's command to be set apart. It was a crime against a perfect, holy, and loving God who had graciously knit them into his family and blessed them when they didn't deserve it at all. And they disregarded the glory of God. We cannot perpetuate true justice without prioritizing God's glory. Listen, You cannot perpetuate true justice without prioritizing God's glory. It cannot happen. It does not work. Because God is the definition of truth and justice. If you aren't motivated by God's glory, you won't pursue true justice, but rather some crooked version of it. So what is the risk of God's sons failing to live for God's glory? Answer, rather than multiplying children of God, we multiply children of the devil. If you want a reference for that, you can read 1 John 3, 1-10 later. 
And what were the motivations of God's sons here, those who were to be God's sons? Well, Jacob's concern is that the other people of the land might decide to seek revenge on him for the Shechemites' destruction. Here on the cusp of God bringing them back to his father's house safely, as he had promised, he feels like he might be destroyed. Jacob seems to think that his inaction towards the injustice done to his daughter was somehow preserving God's mission, but that's no justification. We can't preserve God's mission by being disobedient to God's word. It doesn't work like that. God God preserves his mission, and we end up bearing consequences for our actions or unactions. The brothers, they say, well, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And actually, they rightly recognize that in offering some payment for having already had sex with his sister, that's exactly what Shechem is doing. Shechem is treating her like a prostitute, and and what it implies is, Jacob, you're being a pimp. You're not preserving God's people. But they think that the first wrong justifies their wrongful methods. What surprised me as I studied this passage is that as terrible as it is what Shechem does to Dinah, and it's truly horrible, as terrible as it is what the brothers did to the city, and it was truly terrible, the climax, or rather I should say the low point of this story, is the dishonoring and defiling of God's covenant. That's the worst thing that happens. And when we don't realize that that's the worst thing that happens, our radar for justice is off, and it will get off. We will veer to the left, to the right. It turns out, if you shoot for the mission of God's people without putting God's glory as number one, you will eventually miss that mission. And if you shoot for the justice in the world, and we should work for justice in the world, but if you do that without putting God's glory as number one, you will do more injustice. You will. But if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to us. See, the world needs men of wisdom, strength, and service, but we're left wondering, are there any men of wisdom, strength, and service? Are there any men of wisdom, strength, and service? Do they exist? Jacob is sons, they failed. We have failed. I have failed. The story of Genesis and the history of the world gives us these two kinds of men, as I said at the beginning. Starting in Genesis 3.15, it says that there's the seed of the serpent and there's the seed of the woman, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, men who are in the line of the serpent. We've seen this all throughout Genesis. They have wholly abandoned being men of wisdom and strength and service. They might have one or two of those things, and they might do something that's, that's okay sometimes, but... Mm, Mostly not. What we see instead is that the world continues to degenerate when they're in charge. And then we have men who are in the line of the woman, uh, who are offspring of the woman, and they have faith in God, and yet, and yet they still fail regularly. Why? Immediately in Genesis 3, 16 and 17, if you remember all the way back when we were there, we see that man is plagued with, with failing on two 
uh, in two particular ways. He makes two mistakes in general. One, he foolishly trades his strength for passivity. He may have wanted to serve, but he takes up no power to do so. Like Adam sitting and letting his wife talk to the serpent, the tree. On the other hand, there are those who fall into the other ditch and use their strength to selfishly dominate others. may have a sword of wisdom, but use in the wrong ways for the wrong ends. And so we see ourselves constantly falling in these two ditches. What hope then is there in the world? If men cannot be men of wisdom, strength, and service, what hope is there in the world? Well, Genesis 3.15 gives us this hint of hope. Of the seed of the woman, it says that he shall bruise the head of the serpent, though the serpent will bruise his heel. There is one seed of the woman, one son of Jacob, who came in perfect wisdom and perfect strength and perfect service, the God-man Jesus Christ. He died to redeem our failures, and he rose from the dead so that we don't have to continue going on failing. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It starts with humbling ourselves and realizing you aren't strong enough, you aren't wise enough, and you're far too selfish. Yet you don't have to be any longer. Men, men, let me tell you this. If no one has ever told you this, you don't have to be any longer. You can be men of wisdom. You can be men of strength. You can be men of service. The world needs men like that. The only way we produce these kinds of men is through the man of wisdom, strength, and service. It's the only way. It's the only way through his gospel, through his spirit. It must be the wisdom of God that is revealed through us. It must be the power of God that is at work in us. It must be the love of God that fills us. But these truths, these truths about what Christ does in you, they cannot merely stop there, but they must be fulfilled through his commands as well. What becomes true of us, because we are united with Christ, must be lived out as we are brothers of Christ. We must be imitators of God as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, Ephesians 5.1. We must walk wisely by God's will and not be foolish, Ephesians 5.15-17. We must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might by putting on his armor and standing against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.10. We don't sit passively by, we do something. He created us for good works. Believe. Believe in the man of wisdom, strength, and service. And be men of wisdom, strength, and service that are needed in our world. And listen, only one man, only one man died on the cross and rose again, crushing the head of the serpent. But as Romans 16 says, we need brothers whose obedience is clear, who are wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil, under whose feet the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Let's pray. Lord,